0: Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 Phoenix Gospel Truth Seminar. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. So last night I started teaching on the the book of Galatians and I covered from Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 through Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. I did skip three verses here. I got a little excited and jumped from verse 16 over to verse 20. And Creflo covered one of them this morning. But let me just go back and rehearse a little bit. What you need to take away from last night is in Galatians chapter one, verse six. It uses the term grace and gospel interchangeably. If you aren't talking about the grace of God, you aren't preaching the true gospel. And also, it uh, is really strong here about how he said that it was a perversion of the gospel that he was dealing with. And I talked about that, that it's harder to deal with a perversion of the gospel than it is somebody just coming out and totally countering it. And to mix law and grace together is a perversion of the gospel. Then we also talked about how he placed a curse on anybody. If anybody, even an angel, preaches something different than what I'm saying, let him be accursed. This is the strongest language that Paul used anywhere in the scriptures that he wrote, and it shows that you cannot compromise on this subject of the gospel. Any attempt to compromise will put you back under legalism. To me, it's like when you're flying in a plane you know, gravity is still there, and all you got to do is cut off those engines. And I guarantee you, gravity is gonna pull you down. You might be able to coast a ways and stuff, but the moment you turn off that power, you are coming down. Gravity is still there. The law is still there. The law is being just preached everywhere. Of course, even outside of the church, people don't relate to you by grace. They give you what you deserve. They treat you how you deserve. And that's the reason if you do something wrong, people reject you. And stuff. In the church, it ought to be different, but sad to say, in the church, sometimes it's even worse. That man, you get blamed for the slightest little thing. So there's just not a precedent for the grace of God outside of God. And uh, if you aren't careful, if you compromise on this subject, you will begin to start falling away. And then Paul started talking about in the rest of chapter one and chapter two, he started sharing all of these things about how that he had the authority to say this because this, his message didn't come from man, it was by revelation from God. So one of the takeaways from that message last night is that you have to have a revelation of grace. You need to open up your heart and ask God and let God impart this to you. It comes by revelation. You cannot just be taught this and educated. It is a revelation from God. And I tell you, uh, I was given an invitation last night about the Holy Spirit. One of the things that happened when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like somebody just dropped a bomb on the inside of me, and it mixed up all of the stuff I'd ever been taught, and then God began to reassemble it, amen, and put it back together in the right order. And the Holy Spirit gave me revelation. I mean, the Word just came alive on the inside of me. I emphasized the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues last night, but there's many things that happen, and one of them is that you cannot get the gospel without the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to give you revelation of it. That is really, really an important statement. Let me back up and look at a couple of these verses that I passed over last night, and this is in Galatians chapter two, verse 17. And uh, Creflo touched on this this morning and talked about this. In verse 17, he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, uh, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He was talking about, you know, how that people use grace to uh, preach that you can go out and live in sin and things like this. And this is always a question that comes up when you teach on the subject of grace. People say, so are you just saying that you're encouraging sin? This is what Paul is addressing. God forbid. No, that's not what we're saying. If I go out and live in sin, I have done this to myself. I am going back under the legalism and the bondage of that that I was delivered from. It's not God who leads it in leads us into it, it's us. You know, I had a friend in Chicago who went to preaching on grace, real strong. And uh, one of the things that he taught, similar to what Crevelow was saying about, you know, can we drink wine? Well, the question was, uh, can we smoke if we're under grace? And he started preaching, you know, that you don't go to hell for smoking. You'll smell like you've been there, but you don't go to hell for smoking. (laughs) And God's not mad at you and you don't lose your salvation and God won't do things to you. And so anyway, in a week or two, all of a sudden, all of the deacons and many of the people in the church were standing out in front of the church smoking cigarettes. (laughs) And the critics came to him and said, see what you did, pastor? See all of these people smoking cigarettes? See what grace is doing? And he said, go out there and ask them how many started smoking since I preached on grace? He says, you'll find out they were doing it already. They were just condemned and and ashamed about it. And so they were hiding it. Now they aren't ashamed anymore. And says, that's one of the steps towards being free is getting the thing out in the open. You know what? A fungus can't live if it's exposed to the light. It has to be concealed and in darkness to be able to live. You start exposing your sin to the light and stuff, you'll start getting set free from it. Preaching on grace doesn't make anybody sin. It may set some people who are controlling it and doing it in their heart. It may give them the freedom to just bring it out in the open and admit what they're doing, but it's not gonna cause anybody to sin. Titus chapter two, verse 11 says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Verse 12 says, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we are supposed to live soberly and righteously and holy in this present world. Grace does not free you to sin. And then uh, Creflo talked about verse nine, uh, 19, that's powerful. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Us talking about being free from the law is not contrary to the law. The law prophesied this. The law talked about it. Moses said, there's going to be another come after me and him you'll be able to hear. And the law prophesied this. The law actually set up grace. Grace and law do not contradict each other. They aren't compatible. It was one covenant leading to the other, but the law does not contradict grace, it prophesied this. It led us to it. In Romans chapter three, verse 20, it talks about, or let's see, I missed the verse, but anyway, it's verse 20 or 21 over there. It talks about that the the, uh, righteousness by faith was prophesied under the Old Testament law. It was led to it. So anyway, those are the things we've already covered. Now let's turn over to uh, Galatians chapter three and continue on through the book of Galatians. And so, man, Paul right here, he's through with his introduction. He's made his point. Now he's trying to drive these points home. And in verse one, he said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Man, that is awesome, let me read this to you out of some of these other translations. Here's the Amplify. He said, oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. Who has fascinated or bewitched or cast a spell over you? Unto whom, right before your very eyes, Jesus Christ the Messiah was openly and graphically set forth and portrayed as crucified. Here's the way that the Message Bible says that. You crazy Galatians. Did someone put a hex on you? Have you been, have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. I think it's the Phillips translation that says you dear idiots. I mean, and you can just go on through the translations. There's no way to interpret this any other way as saying, you're you're crazy. Have you lost your minds? Why would anybody want to go back under the law after you've been set free from this? Did you know legalism does not make sense if you really understand what it's about? I was raised under legalism. You know... um, Regina was talking about not being able to dance and stuff like this. Man, I was, I was so strict that as a kid, you couldn't go swimming in a public swimming pool because there was girls pregnant in, I mean, pregnant. (laughs) Well, there might've been girls pregnant too, but there was girl's present (laughs) and you couldn't go swimming with girls present. They called it mixed bathing. That sounds worse than mixed swimming. So man, we didn't do stuff like that. I never danced. You know, people today talk about, well, you used to dance for the devil and you used to do all this stuff. I never danced for the devil. So you know what? I, I just was lived, lived under a strict, strict law. I used to have dreams when I was a kid. I mean, every six months for probably 10 years or more that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught And they turned me into the police and the police turned me over to my mother and I would wake up burning in hell, break out in a cold sweat because I had smoked a cigarette. I never did it. I just dreamed about it. And I would feel so guilty and spend days repenting every time I dream about smoking a cigarette. I'd see profanity scribbled on a wall in a restroom and I'd spend two or three weeks asking God to forgive me for seeing it. I didn't write it, I just saw it. I never said it. I've never said a word of profanity, but I just would think it. And and I was living under condemnation. And why in the world, after being delivered from that, would people want to go back to it? People kind of pick and choose. They take little bits of legalism, but if you take legalism, if you take the law, for its intended purpose to its full conclusion, the law doesn't set anybody free, it binds you. As Creflo was saying, it was given to show you that you can never reach God on your own. It was given to condemn you and to make you quit trying to save yourself and throw yourself upon God for mercy. And this is what Paul is talking about. And in the last part of this first verse, he says, You foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He's talking about that there has to be demonic deception. Nobody in their right mind would live under legalism. You have to have help, demonic help to be a legalist. Those are strong statements, but I'm just expounding on what Paul said. You foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth. And notice this, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. You know, I could spend an hour on this. I'm just gonna say this briefly and move on. But anytime you see Paul referring to the crucifixion, it, it's become a religious cliche, cliche to us. We talk about, yeah, Jesus was crucified. I'm uh, standing on the cross. I'm you know, not gonna glory in anything except the cross and it has become a religious cliche to us, but when Paul was referring to the cross, he was talking about the payment that was made for your sins and it was such a complete payment that there is nothing left for you to do. The cross was drawing on the fact that Jesus paid it all and that there is nothing that you have to do to earn it. And many people miss that when they read this. And so he says, how could you go back into legalism after seeing all that Jesus has paid for your forgiveness of sins? How could you go back to trusting in your own effort and thinking that you had to be holy enough to have God move in your life after seeing Jesus crucified? Now they didn't physically see him crucified, but Paul preached on the atonement that Jesus made for their sins so strongly, it was so real. He says, it's just like Jesus was crucified right in front of you. He made it so clear that Jesus had suffered for them that it was just like they were there at the crucifixion. And that's what he's referring to. And then in verse two, he says, "'This only what I learned of you, "'received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, "'or by the hearing of faith.'" Of course, the obvious answer to this is, he was the one that brought the gospel to them and he knew how they had received the gospel and it wasn't based on their goodness, it was based on what Jesus did for them. And they received the greatest gift of all, which was the forgiveness of their sins, totally as an act of grace. Did you know that in the church realm today, they still do this. When it comes to the initial born again experience, we will sing just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And they'll come and they'll put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And if a person was to come forward here today and if I had a word of knowledge and said, you've just committed adultery, if they truly heard the message of the cross and the gospel, that wouldn't keep them from getting saved. They would say, that's the reason I need salvation is because I've sinned and come short and they would go ahead and receive the forgiveness of their sins, even though they had just committed a terrible act because it's not based on their performance. But let them get saved and come to church and need healing or need a blessing or need something. And if I said, you've committed adultery, man, they'd just fall apart. Oh, I know now why God hasn't healed me, why God isn't moving in my life. We have somehow or another preached the initial born again experience by grace, but then you maintain your relationship with God by your own good works and through living holy. And you may have gotten in by grace, but now you've got to be worthy for God to flow through you and use you. It's a double standard. And yet the scripture says in Colossians chapter two, verse six, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That means if you got saved by grace without one plea and your faith was put in Jesus and what he did for you, then that's the way you ought to be healed. That's the way you ought to be prospered. That's the way you ought to relate to God is by grace. And so this is what he's saying. He says, how did you get saved? Did you receive salvation through the works of the law? Obviously, no, none of us deserve salvation. Likewise, you don't deserve anything else in the Christian life. You need to continue to relate to God totally by grace and not based on your performance. In verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Man, that's a great statement. Are you so crazy to think that you could, you had to come to the Lord and get saved totally by His grace, putting faith in what Jesus did, but now that you're saved, you can somehow or another do it on your own? Did you know actually the way that religion has preached relationship with God, you start totally dependent upon God, but as you grow as a Christian, you're supposed to be stronger and stronger and stronger and you're supposed to get to where you can do it and you can now do these things and overcome. I called a woman on the phone one time and I said, hello, this is Andrea, how are you doing? And she says, oh, I'm weak in him. And when she said that, I thought, what does that mean? And she she started explaining, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And you know, actually, the Christian life shouldn't be that you started out totally dependent upon God, but now he's done so much in you that you can handle it from here. It ought to be that we get weaker and weaker and weaker in ourselves. We depend less and less and less upon ourselves, and we just get more and more and more dependent upon the grace of God. This is what he's saying. Are you so foolish that you had to start in the spirit, but now you're gonna be perfected by your flesh, by your keeping of the law, by all of your goodness? The obvious answer is no, definitely not. And in verse four, have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Over in Galatians 5.11, we'll talk about this more, but Paul said, if I was to preach legalism, circumcision, then the offense of the cross is ceased. If you start preaching law and performance, you won't be persecuted for that. People can relate to that. That makes sense to the natural mind because the whole human race, the whole world is based on performance. You do well, things go well. You do badly, you get punished. And carnal people understand that. It takes the Holy Spirit to help you to understand grace. And he says, you, you started out in faith and you suffered for it, and now are you just throwing all of this away? All of the suffering, all of the rejection that you've been through, have you walked away from that? Have you done all these things in vain, if it be yet in vain? And in verse five, he therefore that ministereth to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You know, this is a good question. People that see miracles, why is it that they see miracles? Did you know most people would sit there and say it's because they're holy? I've heard sermons before where if you want to see the power of God, you've got to be holy. Holy. You've got to do these things. God won't use a dirty vessel. And people basically preach that if God uses you, it's because you must have something really going good. You are really holy. I've told people before that I've seen people raised from the dead and I've seen blind eyes open and things like this. And people look at me and they don't see me as holy. They think that if you ever see miracles happen that somehow or another you must move on to another realm. You just must be different than everybody else because again, they think it's proportional to how holy you are or something. I'm telling you, God has never had anybody qualified working for him yet. If you really see the miraculous power of God, you are gonna be a person that has to understand grace. I used this verse last night, Acts chapter four, verse 33. It says the apostles gave uh, Witness of the resurrection power of God through all these miracles because great grace was upon them. You will never see the really miraculous power of God manifest in your life if you are a person thinking God only flows through you when you deserve it. Because the truth is you don't deserve it. And your own conscience will condemn you and show you that you're coming short and you will stop short of consistently seeing the power of God operate in your life if you are living by this performance-based relationship with God. You cannot operate consistently in the supernatural power of God thinking that God owes it to you because I guarantee you, you are going to fail and your own conscience will condemn you. So the answer to this question is, those who work miracles among you, are they doing it because they are holy and they've earned this power? Absolutely not. It's the grace of God that flows through us and causes miracles to happen. In verse six, even as Abraham believed God. Here's how the miracle power of God works through people. It's the same way it worked through Abraham. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That is a quotation from Genesis chapter 15, verse six. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And if you study the life of Abraham, you know, it's amazing to me how that we just read these scriptures and OUR PRECONCEIVED RELIGIOUS TEACHING MAKES US INTERPRET IT AND MISS THE OBVIOUS TRUTHS THAT ARE THERE. IF ANYBODY LOOKS AT ABRAHAM, ABRAHAM WAS NOT THE HOLIEST GUY. (laughs) ABRAHAM DID SOME SERIOUS, SERIOUS THINGS WRONG. I DON'T HAVE TIME TO TEACH ON IT, BUT DID YOU KNOW THAT ABRAHAM, HE WAS CALLED TO LEAVE UR OF THE CHALDEES and leave his family and leave his brother. when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, it says that. And yet, he moved to Haran and lived there for decades with his father and with his brother before they died. And only after they died did he come into the Promised Land. And even then, he didn't do it exactly the way God said. He still had Lot, his nephew, with him. And I suppose that Lot's father, had died, and he was thinking he was doing Lot a favor and helping him. And so even though God had told him to leave his father's house, that meant all of his relatives, he in his own mind justified that I've got to take care of my nephew. How did that turn out? Turned out that Lot wound up losing his wife. She turned into a pillar of salt and his other daughters and their husbands and his grandkids were killed in Sodom and Gomorrah and the two daughters who came out with him were so corrupt being raised in that ungodly society that they wound up having sex with their father and committing incest and stuff like that. The whole family was destroyed. I tell you what, you just cannot compromise. When God tells you to leave your family, he would have been better off to have left Lot to fend for himself than to bring him into a situation where he wound up experiencing all of the stuff that he did. Abraham missed it there and of course, he lied about his wife twice and told people, she's my sister, help yourself. (laughs) You know, you read this in scripture and somehow or another, it just doesn't dawn on us, but what would you think if I was here and somebody thought, man, I like Jamie? And I said, I never saw that woman before. You just (laughs) help yourself. I guarantee you, that'd be a scandal. Abraham did the wrong thing. Abraham was not a perfect example. And then when they didn't see God's plan come to pass, Sarah came up with an idea. Why don't you go into my slave girl and have sex with her and I'll have a child by her. Doesn't say that Abraham argued with her one bit. (laughs) He went right in and had an Ishmael and the entire Arab-Israeli conflict that we have today was caused by Abraham. YOU KNOW WHAT, ABRAHAM WAS NOT THE HOLIEST PERSON AROUND. AND YET, THE REASON HE WAS, he was CHOSEN BY GOD IS BECAUSE GOD MADE A PROMISE TO HIM AND ABRAHAM BELIEVED GOD AND IT WAS ACCOUNTED UNTO HIM FOR RIGHTEOUS. HE HAD FAITH RIGHTEOUSNESS, NOT WORKS RIGHTEOUSNESS. It's so obvious in scripture and this is what Paul is referring to. How is it that you see the power of God work through you? It's the same way that Abraham saw it. Not because he did everything right but because he believed God. God looks at things differently than we look at things. You know, I can remember a time being at Tom Anderson's church, Living Word over in Mesa and uh, he let us use his facility for one of our meetings. Charlie and Jill were there And I was preaching and I was preaching on grace. This has been, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. And there was a young girl there that was so excited. She was sitting over here and she would bounce up and down on her chair. She could not sit still, she would jump up and down. And she was just in love with the Lord and so excited about all the things I was saying. So after the second or third service, I asked her to come up and give a testimony. I wanted to hear what was going on with her. And I don't know if you were at this meeting or not, Tom. But anyway, this this woman got up. She was like 20-something years old. And she said, Jesus is the best. Blankety-blanket. And she started cussing. She used words of profanity that I've never heard in my life. She couldn't say more than two or three words without cussing. And she compared Jesus to sex, to dope. Says, this is the best sex I've ever had. It's the best dope. She was just... I mean, she was just barely saved. <laughs> and this woman was just saying things that would curl your hair. And you know what? The people were responding. It's like they sucked all the air out of the room. And uh, she had stopped and look at me and she says, did I say something wrong? And I said, nope, you're just doing great. Keep going. And this... And this woman just stood up there and for five minutes just cussed and compared Jesus to things that you wouldn't think that you would do. And, but you know what? She sat down and I told people, I said, you know what? Some of you are offended by the way she talked and the things that she did. And I said, but God looks on the heart. That woman's heart has changed. And I said, God is more pleased with her testimony than many of you that are straight as a gun barrel and twice as empty. And I said, man, God is pleased with that. And the next year, that woman came up to me and she says, I'm so sorry, I didn't know that Christians didn't talk that way. <laughs> she, she said, to everybody I knew, that's the way we talked. And she grew out of it and got over it. But see, God looks on the heart and you can see that with Abraham. Abraham was not the perfect man. He did some serious things wrong and yet, He was the one that God chose and he called him the friend of God. He's the only person in the Old Testament called the friend of God. A man who was immoral and did some serious things wrong. And you can go right on down. Isaac, his son, did the exact same thing with his wife, lied about her. Jacob married two sisters, Rachel and Leah, which Leviticus 18 says that if a man marries the sister of his wife while the wife is still alive, that he has to be put to death. And if you don't put him to death, you have to be put to death. It was an abomination in the sight of God. And yet this man, Jacob, wrestled with God and prevailed. He won in a wrestling match with an angel and he changed his name to Israel and he became the father of all of the Israelites. You know, if you were looking for it, how could you miss grace in the Old Testament? (laughs) And yet people think, well, you gotta be holy like Abraham was, like Isaac was, like Jacob was. And on and on. Man. He's making a point right here. He says, the way that you get the power of God is operating is the same way that Abraham did. And then in verse 7, he says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith. The same are the children of Abraham. It was Abraham's faith that pleased God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith is what pleases God, not performance. Performance is a reflection of whether or not you are really believing God and trusting God. But performance in our church today has become the main thing. And people emphasize performance. I even had one pastor tell me, he says, I don't care what they do on Saturday night. They can go out and you know sleep around, do whatever, as long as they come to church on Sunday morning and praise God and pay their tithes. And that's pretty much what religion is about. It's all external. Religion will always focus on the action, but the gospel will change a person's heart. It will reach them at the heart level. It doesn't matter how high you can jump it, you know, religion will say it's how far, how straight you can walk. They're all talking about the actions, but God is focused on a person's heart. And so he said in verse seven, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith Preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So God preached the gospel. He says it's through faith. Those who have the faith of Abraham will be the true people of God. Not the physical descendants, not the ones that observe the rituals and the law and the, uh, all of the ceremonies and all of these kind of things. But those that are blessed uh, by faith are the children of Abraham. Man, I could spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to mention this. You can look it up in Romans chapter three, verse twenty-eight. Um, can you put that scripture up there, Ryan? Romans three twenty, or excuse me, it's two twenty-eight. Romans two twenty-eight. Save me turning over there. I think I might be faster than Ryan. Here it is: For he is not a Jew, which is one outward neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. And the next verse, thank you. Are you there, Ryan? (laughs) But he is a Jew which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter for whose praise is not of man, but of God. Boy, those scriptures are radical. A true Jew is a person that has faith in God and trusts Him for their salvation. And that's what made Abraham the father of, of us all. Now, I'm not saying that the Jews are excluded. The Jews still have certain promises to the physical descendants. I'm not one of these replacement theology guys that the Jews have been displaced by the church and they have no promises. They still have promises. BUT WE ARE THE PEOPLE OF GOD. FIRST PETER CHAPTER 2, VERSE 10, I BELIEVE IT IS, SAYS, YOU WERE NOT A PEOPLE, BUT NOW ARE YOU THE PEOPLE OF GOD. WE ARE THE TRUE PHYSICAL or, OR... WE ARE THE TRUE SPIRITUAL CHILDREN OF ABRAHAM. WE ARE HIS descendants, PEOPLE THAT HAVE FAITH IN GOD. PEOPLE WHO ARE OF THE LAW ARE NOT TRUE JEWS. THEY ARE NOT THE TRUE PEOPLE OF GOD. Usually goes over about like that, but that's what these verses are saying. It says, you are the children of Abraham. And in verse eight, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, and these shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. If you are of the law, you aren't blessed with faithful Abraham. If you are of the law, of faith you are blessed with faithful Abraham. In verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You know, Creflo used Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses one and two. Turn, let's turn over there and look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 27. AND REMEMBER THAT THIS WASN'T WRITTEN IN CHAPTER AND VERSES. THESE WERE INSERTED LATER SO THAT WE COULD TURN OVER THERE AND FIND THEM. BUT THIS WAS WRITTEN AS ONE LETTER. AND IN THE 27TH CHAPTER, HE SPLIT HALF OF THE PEOPLE AND PUT THEM ON MOUNT Gerizim, AND HALF OF THE PEOPLE ON MOUNT EBAL. AND HE HAD THE PEOPLE ON ONE MOUNTAIN READ ALL OF THE BLESSINGS THAT WOULD COME IF YOU WOULD KEEP THE LAW and the people on the other mountain read all of the curses that would come upon you if you didn't keep the law. And they ended after saying all of these things. This is the last verse of chapter 27. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all of the words of the law to do them and all the people shall say amen. It says that if you don't do all of the law, you are cursed. It's not like if you do 90% good, then you get 90% good. If you do 99.9% good and do one tiny thing wrong, the curse comes upon you instead of the blessing. And then Creflo used those verses in chapter 28, verses one and two about that all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if YOU HEARKEN DILIGENTLY. THAT WORD IF THERE IS HUGE. IT MAKES IT CONDITIONAL UPON YOUR PERFORMANCE. AND NOBODY EVER KEPT THE LAW. THE LAW WASN'T GIVEN SO YOU COULD KEEP IT, BUT RATHER IT WAS GIVEN TO SHOW YOU YOU CAN'T KEEP IT, SO YOU WOULD QUIT TRYING TO EARN GOD'S FAVOR AND YOU WOULD RECEIVE IT AS A GIFT. THE WAY THAT A NEW TESTAMENT BELIEVER SHOULD READ, DEUTERONOMY CHAPTER 28 VERSE 1 IS SAYING, IT IS COMING TO PASS since Jesus has hearkened diligently unto the voice of the Lord his God to observe and to do all of these commandments that therefore all of these blessings are coming upon me and overtaking me because of what Jesus has done and I am now an heir with Jesus by faith. I've actually heard people take Deuteronomy chapter 28, list all of the blessings and say, the reason you hadn't got them is because you hadn't done it diligently enough. Try harder. If you've been praying 30 minutes a day, pray an hour a day. But just like Creflo was saying, you know, you can't love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. That was not given so you could do it. It was given to show you that this is what God created us to be. This is perfection. And none of us are perfect. And so we need to quit trusting in works righteousness, self-salvation, and we need to come to the Lord. And this is what he's referring to over here in Genesis. I mean, in Galatians chapter three, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that's the last verse of Deuteronomy 27. And if you don't do it perfectly, then instead of getting a portion of the blessing, you get all of the curse. If people understood this, they would not preach the law but they pick and choose and they say, well, I don't do it perfectly. I I don't claim that I'm perfect, but at least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. Praise God, I live holier than this this publican over here and they get into this Pharisee syndrome where they start comparing themselves and say, I'm better than this person. People who are saying stuff like that do not understand the law that they're advocating because the law says if you don't keep it perfectly, the curse comes on you instead of the blessing. I've had people argue with me before and and fight for legalism and you've still got to be holy and you got to keep the 10 Commandments. And I said, name them. (laughs) And they, they can't even name these commandments that they're supposed to be keeping. And if I just keep probing, I say, do you do everything right? Do you ever get angry with your brother without a cause? See, when Jesus came, he took the Ten Commandments and he magnified them. He actually amplified them. The Old Testament law said don't kill. Jesus said it's not enough just not to kill. If you've even been angry in your heart, you've committed murder. The Old Testament law says you can't, shall not covet. You can't lust after another man's wife, and he says, if you've even thought it in your heart, if you've lusted in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And he took the commandments and took them from not just your actions, but even if you've conceived it, if you've thought it in your heart, he magnified it. Again, not so that you could just, you know, uh, try and fulfill everything he was saying. He was just saying that nobody can keep this, quit trying to earn salvation, and trust me, let me give you salvation as a gift. And so this is what this is talking about, that the law brings the curse because none of us could keep it. Any person who is advocating that you have to be holy and unless you do all of these things, God won't bless you, you don't understand what you're saying. You're preaching partial holiness. You're preaching that God grades on a curve And maybe nobody's gonna live up to this perfect standard, but you know, if you're in the top 10 percentile, then you pass. Nope, if you aren't perfect, then you fail. And man, if people really understood the law, the law condemns us, it never sets anybody free. The purpose of the law is to show you that you cannot earn God's favor. And in verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. That's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. And that's also quoted in Romans chapter one, verse 17, and also Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. This was an Old Testament scripture that showed even under the old covenant that anybody who's justified will live by faith. The only way people under the Old Testament could ever be justified was by faith. Did you know when David committed sin with Bathsheba, he broke the law. He murdered Bathsheba's husband and committed adultery with her, and he lied about it and tried to cover it up. He broke at least three laws. And when Nathan came and reproved him, uh, Psalms chapter 51 is his prayer of confession and his repentance. Uh, where he prayed this. And anyway, David said in Psalms chapter 51, he says, I'd give sacrifice if that's what God wanted. But he says the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. And David, who had murdered a man, committed adultery, tried to cover it up and lied about it, borne false witness. This man never offered a sacrifice for his sin, which was demanded, commanded under the Old Testament law because he understood that those were just symbolic and he says, God, it's my repentance in my heart that you really want. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. And David was justified and had relationship with God by faith, not by keeping the law. He never did offer the sacrifices that the law commanded. Again, grace is evident in the Old Testament if people would open up their eyes and look for it. But we've been taught legalism so long, we just automatically Go in that direction. You know, it's kind of like if you've gone down this dirt road so much that you've got the ruts are just deep and deep. You know what? You could uh, drive a car or bring a wagon down there, and the ruts are so deep you just can't miss it. You just fall into those ruts every time because they're so deep. We've had legalism programmed into us so much that you read a scripture. And we just automatically see the law side of it instead of the grace side because we've been prejudiced, programmed in that way. But this is saying that nobody is ever gonna be justified by the law. It was by faith that the the, the just live by. And look at verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Man, this is one radical passage of scripture. The law is not of faith. You know, that's offensive to some people today, but in Paul's day, when the law was the thing, man, God gave the law and you had to keep the law. It was the focus of everybody. To say that the law was not of faith was radical. I can guarantee you Paul offended a slew of people by saying this. People today are so afraid to speak the truth they're just so afraid. I don't think we ought to go out and want to offend people. I don't think you ought to, you know, there's some people that just like to stir the pot and mess things up. I don't think that ought to be our desire, but at the same time, if we follow the example of the apostle Paul, Paul spoke the truth. He said in Galatians 4:16, someday maybe I'll get over there. He says, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. It's the truth that sets people free. I used to be afraid to say the truth because I thought that this person would reject it and also that they might reject me. And the Lord spoke to me one time and he says, you know what, if you don't tell them the truth because you're afraid that they might reject it, then you've rejected it for them. You didn't even give them the opportunity to reject it for themselves. Everybody ought to have the honor of rejecting the truth for themselves. And since that time, I've just gotten to a place to where, you know what? It's not right for me to reject the truth for you. I'm gonna tell you the truth and if you accept it, great. And if you don't, it's your problem, but I'll tell you the truth. And it is the truth, brothers and sisters, that the law is not of faith. Put that together with Romans chapter 14, verse 23. In Romans 14, 23, says, but it he that... Uh, Doubteth is damned if he eat, because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Put those two scriptures together, and trying to serve God and relate to God by the law is sin. I'm not saying that the law is sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, is the law sin? God forbid No, that's not what I'm saying. The law isn't sin. The law was perfect, but the law wasn't given to bring you into relationship with God. It was given to show you that you cannot do it on your own. So quit trying and accept salvation as a gift. If you use the law for that purpose, that's great. But if you try and live by the law and think that God accepts you proportional to your performance, it's sin. Thank you for that one amen. (laughs) Those are radical statements that'll get you in a lot of trouble today, but that's exactly what this scripture is saying. The law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. And Jesus was hung on a tree and so he was accursed. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that it is an abomination that God hates a person being hung on the tree. And so in the Jewish culture, you could not put a person on a tree. And if you did, you had to cut them down before the night because it was an abomination. It was a curse for a person to be hung on a tree. Jesus was hung on a tree. The cross and all of God's curses, all of God's anger and wrath came upon Jesus so that you would never be cursed. And a person who is saying, But I deserve to be cursed. Some people see, criticize me and think, So you're just making light of sin. I'm not making light of sin. Sin's terrible. Sin separated us from God. Sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. I am not making light of sin, but I'm saying that sin was paid for. And people who sit there and say, but you've got to suffer for your sin. You are making light of Christ and what he has done and his payment. And you're saying he didn't pay it all. He only paid a portion and you also have to suffer. Man, that's not true. Christ redeemed us from the curse being made a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, not through performance, not through all of these things, but you just put faith in what Jesus has done. You look at his payment and not your payment and we've been redeemed from the curse. And then he says, brethren, I speak after the manner of man. In other words, I'm talking in just a natural way. If you were to have a contract between two people, if that contract is ratified, then you can't void that contract. Well, God made a contract with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse six, 430 years before the law came into effect there was the covenant of righteousness by faith 430 years before the law was given. That's what he's referring to. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. In other words, this covenant of faith with Abraham was made 430 years Prior and so the Old Testament law could not add to it or nullify the first covenant. The first covenant stood. And then he goes on to say, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said, not to seeds, plural, as of many, but as as of one, and to thy seed, singular, which is Christ. Again, people read these Old Testament scriptures and think that Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, were blessed. And Jesus even talked about this with the Jews. He says, you know, you trust in the fact that you are the uh, son of Abraham and all of these things. John chapter eight. And he says, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. True children of Abraham are people that have faith in him for salvation. If you are trusting Jesus and are born again, you are the true descendant of Abraham. You are Abraham's seed. You are a part of Christ. Let me drop down to verse, uh, the last verse here in verse 29. I'm gonna come back later and cover these others, maybe uh, tomorrow. And if you be Christ, apostrophe S, that means possessive, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 16 says that Abraham and his seed, singular where the promise is made and that seed is Christ. And verse 29 says, if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed? God sees you as Jesus because you have been united with him. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 17. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. In the spirit realm, you are identical to Jesus. As he is, so are we in this world. First John chapter four, verse 17. Your spirit has been born again, and we'll cover this later in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that when you get born again, God sends forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. You literally have God himself living on the inside of you, and God is a spirit, John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and to worship him, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. When God, who is a spirit, looks at you, he looks at you in the spirit realm and he sees you in Christ and he sees you as Christ and he deals with you based on what Jesus has done, not based on what you have done. This is why Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do it unto you. When we say in the name of Jesus, you know, we end our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To a lot of people, that's just a religious cliche again and it's just the way that you end your prayer and they don't know what it's talking about. But what it's talking about is, Father, I'm in Christ. I'm stand, I'm worshiping you in spirit. The part of me that is one with the Lord, the part of me that is identical to Jesus as he is, so am I in the spirit. In Jesus, I'm claiming his righteousness and his holiness. In the name of Jesus, I pray. That's what you should be saying. If you are praying and saying, oh God, I've fasted and I've prayed and I'm going to church and I'm living holier than I ever have, I believe that now you can heal me in Jesus' name. You just use the name of Jesus in vain. You've taken the name of God in vain. And I tell you, that is done millions and millions of times every day. People using that phrase, but not putting any faith in who they are in Christ and what Jesus has done. They are actually trusting in their own goodness. And that's the reason that your prayers are ineffective is because you may say the words, but it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 10, that you have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. It's not just a formula. You say these words and they're magic and things change. You have to believe it in your heart. And most people, when they say in the name of Jesus, aren't really trusting in Jesus and what he's done. They just use that as the closing to their prayer, like the end. And it doesn't mean much. And because they don't put faith in it, it doesn't release the power. I'm telling you, we have been delivered from the Old Testament law. And Jesus redeemed us from this curse. And we are just now getting into some good things, but I'm out of time. So I'll continue this tomorrow. I've got two sessions. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.